And so if you would please stand for a reading of God's word. This morning we're going to be in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll begin reading with verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Verse 10, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. In a book called The God Delusion, atheist Richard Dawkins wrote this, and I want you to hear what he has to say. He said, quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, megalomaniacal, I can't even say that word, cytomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, what does that mean? Other than he clearly knows how to use a thesaurus, what Dawkins, I think, is trying to say is that to believe in God for him is not just foolish, it's immoral. And for him, the reason that it's immoral is because of the stories that we read in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is filled with atrocities. Stories of such sadness and sorrow. Stories of sin and brokenness. And the truth is, the Old Testament really is sometimes a messy book. Perhaps you have thought that yourself as we've studied 1 Samuel together. Maybe perhaps for some of you, it's the first time that you've really looked at the Old Testament in detail and you've wondered, why is there so much brokenness? Why is there so much violence? Why is the Old Testament such a mess? This is not a new question, but it's a question that has faced the church for centuries. In the second century, there was a bishop named Marcion. Here's how he tried to solve the problem of the messiness of the Old Testament. He decided to throw it out. For Marcion, he believed that the God of the Old Testament was actually different than the God of the New. The God of the New Testament is a God of love a God of compassion, a God of peace. 
In his mind, the God of the Old Testament is a God of war, a God of conflict, a God of violence. And so he decided to throw the Old Testament out altogether. The only problem with that is he was condemned as a heretic. And while you and I probably don't struggle with the heresy that Marcion proposed, that we would throw out the Old Testament, the truth is we, we have a hard time with it sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we even avoid it because we don't know quite what to do with it. Why is the Old Testament sometimes so messy? What we're going to see this morning is that the fact that the Old Testament at times, yes, describes sorrow and sin and even violence, the fact that the Old Testament is a messy story is actually good news. Because the Old Testament isn't afraid to describe the reality of the messiness of human life. That the truth is, if we look at our world, and even the world inside our own hearts, we are a mess. And the Bible is the story, the true story, of God breaking down into the broken mess of humanity to redeem us as his people. Our passage this morning describes the crowning of King David. And if all we did was just read the passage that I just read to you, 2 Samuel 5, we would assume that this was just a triumphant moment. David has finally come to the throne. What you might not realize is that the first five chapters of 2 Samuel leading up to this moment are completely broken and a total mess, full of sorrow and full of sin. What I want us to see this morning is that it's through the messy work of redemption that David was crowned king, and through the messy work of redemption that Jesus Christ was crowned king at the cross. So the first way I want us to look at this is this. It was through sorrow that David became king. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, I want you to get it out. If you don't have one of those, there's a blue pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. In 2 Samuel 1, this is what we are told. It picks up right where 1 Samuel leaves off. Verses 1 and 2, we're told that Saul has just returned from battle. He's just defeated the Amalekites, and now a messenger has come. Verse 3, David said to the messenger, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. At the end of 1 Samuel, we learn that Saul has died. On the field of battle, he is surrounded by archers because he knows that he is going to die anyways. He takes his own life. And now in 2 Samuel 1, a messenger has come to David to give him the news. There's a word that's used in verse 4. It's a very important word. It's the word fallen. 
If you were with us last week, Saul went and sought out a medium and he fell down with fear when he learned that he would die. Then we're told in 1 Samuel 31 that when he took his own life, he fell on his own sword. Now we're told in battle, Saul and Jonathan have all fallen and are dead. And then now that David has learned that Saul has died, he issues a nationwide lament and he cries out how the mighty have fallen. This is Saul, the mighty one, the king of Israel, the one was a head taller than anyone else. This high and mighty king has been brought low. You see, every regime, every dictator, every leader, every government, every earthly kingdom and every earthly king has one thing in common. None of them will last forever. Every single one will fall. The only king who will last forever is Jesus Christ, and his kingdom will have no end. And so verse 5, chapter 1, David asks this young man, how do you know that Saul has died? And this is what he says, verse 9. He said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and beside him, and I killed him. Now, if you're paying attention, you're probably noticing that the story of this young Amalekite doesn't quite match what actually happened. The Bible is clear that Saul took his own life, and yet this young man has come to David to tell him that Saul has died. Not only that, he is telling David, I'm the one who killed him. Why would he lie? Because this young man assumes that David would be happy at the news. I mean, it stands to reason, right? Saul was the one that was standing before him in the kingdom. Saul was the one who was on the throne, even though David knows that he will be the next king. Saul was the one that was hunting him down in the wilderness. And now Saul is dead. Shouldn't David be happy? Not only is he not happy, but upon hearing that Saul has died and that this young man is claiming responsibility, he has him executed. And then we're told this, verse 11. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who are with them. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord of the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. When David learned that Saul had died, he did not rejoice. He did not celebrate. He did not dance on the grave of his enemy, but he mourned and he wept and he fasted. You see, it was through sorrow that David became king. I wonder, when is the last time that you cried? I mean, really, when was the last time that you really cried? I know some of you cry easily, and others of you are a bit more like me, and you're dead inside, so you cry at nothing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real weeping. 
real sorrow. When is the last time that you let yourself feel sorrow for the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of your own life? Shortly after I graduated from college, I joined two friends in the sub-Saharan country of Cameroon. We were going with a very small NGO to try to help this small village named Bawa begin to push back the effects of illness, and particularly malaria. And so we had brought with us bed nets and education tools to help them uh, try to protect themselves from mosquitoes because malaria was decimating this very small village And so it was a punch in the gut that when we arrived the very next day, our first full day there, we were invited to join a funeral for a young child who died from malaria. And as guests at this funeral, watching and witnessing the entire village come together, I began to notice something. These people know how to mourn. It had become part of their culture. They knew what it looked like to come together as a people and to weep together, to cry together, to wail together, and to mourn the loss of this child together. And as I watched them sing songs of mourning, I thought about back home here in America. And I began to think, we've lost the ability to do that, haven't we? You see, we hate being sad. We hate being sorrowful. In our pursuit of happiness, we do everything we can to push sad things out of sight and out of mind, but they are still there. The Bible is not afraid to tackle sad things. The Bible is willing to admit that in a fallen world, there is sorrow and there is sadness. And so this morning, if you find yourself coming into this sanctuary weighed down by sorrow, feeling a sense of loss or grief because of the brokenness of our world or the brokenness of your life, I want you to hear this. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Friends, if you find yourself sorrowful, know this, God is with you. He has drawn near to the brokenhearted in the person of his son, the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ. But the second thing I want us to see, it wasn't just through sorrow that David became king. It was also through sin. 2 Samuel chapter 2. In chapter 2, we learn that David doesn't immediately become king over all Israel. There's a rift. There's a division David was able to become king of Judah, but the rest of the tribes of Israel banded together and they were followed under the throne and the authority of Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth, his name literally means a man of shame. 
and it's a fitting name. Because as the son of Saul, even though David was the rightful heir to the throne because of God's declaration, Ishbosheth claimed the throne for himself. And in doing so, he created a conflict that lasted for years. And for the next several chapters of 2 Samuel leading up to 2 Samuel 5, there is conflict, there are battles, and there is incredible violence. First, we hear of the murder of a man named Abner by a mother man named Joab. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we have the story of Ishbosheth himself being assassinated. I want to share a little bit of that story with you this morning. I want to warn you, it is violent, it is dark, and it's wicked. Ishbosheth has claimed the throne over Israel instead of David, and he has two men. Two men who are responsible for leading raids out against other villages. These two men turn on Ishbosheth, and they come and they murder him in his sleep. The Bible is graphic. It tells us that they stabbed him in his stomach and then they cut off his head and they brought his head as a trophy and they laid it before the feet of David. Why would they do that? Because again, just like Saul's death, they assumed that David would rejoice at the death of his enemy. Here is Ishbosheth. Once again, he stands in between David and the full kingdom of Israel, and now they have killed him in cold blood. David, shouldn't you be happy? Shouldn't you thank us? They even say that they have done the Lord's work. And once again, not only is David grieved, but he has these two murderers put to death. It is a violent, wicked, and sinful plot in order to remove Ishbosheth out of the way so David could come to the throne. And as I end this morning, the question for us is what do we do with that? What do we do with the sin and wickedness and violence that we see in the Bible? Well, just like our grief, violence makes us uncomfortable, and rightly so, because it is wrong. But the truth is, is in countries like Cameroon, they are growing up with violence all around them. Yet for us, we're so often insulated from it. Sure, we turn on the television, we see the violence of crime, but I want you to begin to wrestle with the violence that truly is all around us. The violence of hatred, the violence of prejudice, the violence of abortion. Yes, violence occurs any time that we devalue the humanness of another person. And the truth is, what violence does, it forces us to reckon with sin. See, I think sin can become just an abstract construct to us, just a theological idea. Sin is this bad thing that's out there. We never realize that sin actually does violence to other people, that our sin does violence to our own souls. And yes, our sin does violence to God himself. 
The late R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, when we sin, we not only commit treason against God, but we also do violence to each other. Sin violates people. There is nothing abstract about it. By my sin, I hurt other human beings. When I dishonor God, I dishonor all people who bear his image. Is it any wonder then that God takes sin so seriously? The Bible does not prescribe violence, but it does describe it because it takes it seriously, because the Bible takes sin seriously. How do you view your sin? Do you view it for what it really is, violence against God himself? Because the last thing that we're going to see this morning is that ultimately all of this was according to God's will. 2 Samuel 5 is where we're going to end. I want you to look at verse 12. David is finally crowned king. And then we're told this, that verse 12, that David knew that the Lord established him king over Israel. Here's what I want you to see. Through all of this sorrow and all of this sin, God was at work. And what man meant for evil God meant for good. And he used all of these acts of sorrow and heinous sin to rise up David as his chosen king. The king who would shepherd his people. The king who would bring redemption to a broken land. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to see this morning is that in the same way that God, through the messy work of redemption, raised up his King David, our God, through the messy work of redemption, raised up his son, Jesus Christ. Our profession of faith this morning is taken from Acts 2. If you have a bulletin, I want you to go ahead and get it out. This is where we'll end. Acts 2, verse 22 declares this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There is nothing more sorrowful and nothing more sinful than the cross. And yet God was at work. And according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, he delivered up his son to endure the violence of the cross for you and for me. There in a violent act, our Savior was nailed to the cross and a crown of thorns was placed upon his head. And in that moment, the cross became a throne and our Savior was crowned as King. But he didn't stay dead. Our king rose in three days. On the third day, Christ rose again and he conquered sin and sorrow so that there would be no more crying and no more pain. And one day we know he is going to return to make all things new. Do you know him? Have you bowed down before Jesus Christ as your king and as your savior Have you trusted in what he has done for you so there would be no more sin 
and no more sorrow. Let us prayerfully go before him and ask that question as we come to the table. Our Father, we ask that you would search our hearts. Help us now as we come to the table to trust in what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. And may we find freedom from sin and sorrow and his death and resurrection, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.